Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm talking with attorney Anu Murthy about some of the challenges as well as the opportunities afforded by new CMS regulations related to the coronavirus outbreak. We're going to talk about new rules that impact both practice owners as well as employee physicians. And while we're discussing things in the context of anesthesiology and pain management, these concepts will have broad applicability. Since we're discussing legal concepts today, it's important to note that the following interview is for informational purposes only. We're going to be discussing legal topics, but nothing in this interview should be relied upon as legal advice. Any specific questions about your situation should be directed to your qualified attorney. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. This week, I'm very pleased to be joined by a special guest, attorney Anu Murthy. Anu is a healthcare attorney with a diverse background representing healthcare systems, physician groups and practices, individual physicians, as well as physician recruiting companies. She's joining me today to discuss the implications of the changing legal landscape for physicians as it relates to providing care during the coronavirus. Anu, thanks a lot for joining me today. You're welcome, Justin. Thank you for um, having me. You're right. This is a very um, topical area to be talking about today. Let me start off by telling you a little bit about myself. As you mentioned, I am a healthcare attorney with about uh, 25, 30 years of experience. And uh, this is the ecosystem I know. I was married to a physician for 27 years, and I have several dozen physicians in my immediate family. So um, I live and breathe healthcare and healthcare law. Um, Did you say so several in- dozen in your immediate family? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, you should come to one of our um, Thanksgivings there. Sounds they're- like a very safe place to have a heart attack. Oh my, it's a safe place to have a heart attack. Not always a safe place to be um, an attorney though. Um, You know, physicians and attorneys don't always uh, mix. And, and especially when I was, when I ventured into what my, what my brother, the anesthesiologist called the dark side, I went, I went in house and worked for um, several different healthcare systems. So I was on the employer side, the system side, the administration side, and I did that for about a decade. And a couple of months ago, um, ironically, I decided that I would uh, leave that sphere and go back to doing what I love the most, which is representing, advising, and counseling physicians, as opposed to being on the um, employer um, system side. Nothing wrong with that side, but that my, my true love really is, is helping physicians. So, so here I am um, relaunching a very specialized niche you know, area of practice. And uh, now we're at home in the midst of this pandemic. So it's given me a lot of time to, to read and um, work with uh, clients remotely, but uh, it certainly has put a little bit of a damper on my uh, business growth plans. Sure. Well, I'm grateful for your time to join us here today. Thank you. Uh, And I'm looking forward to learning more about the Stark Laws. So, uh, you know, our physician listeners are probably have probably varying degrees of exposure to what Stark is and means. So talk a little bit about the background behind maybe the genesis of the Stark Laws. What does it mean today as far as physician practice do's and don'ts? Okay. so um, again, Stark Laws, you mentioned um, is almost a four-letter word with most physicians, and and rightly so because it it presents a number of 
barriers and obstacles to the practice of medicine as we see it today. And I'll go into a little bit about, about why that is. But let me tell you, so Stark started in 1988. It was called Stark Law because it was introduced by uh, Representative Pete Stark, a uh, Democrat from California. And it was really intended to prohibit the exchange of anything of value to induce or uh, reward the referral of business services. So it's also called the physician self-referral law. So it, it prohibited a referral by a physician of a Medicare or Medicaid patient to an entity that provided DHS designated health services if the physician or immediate family member had a financial relationship with that entity. And it started out with just labs, but it really has you know, become much more pervasive. And almost any financial relationship that a physician has with a with an entity that provides designated health services is under the purview of Stark. It's it's become a you know very burdensome statute to comply with. It it doesn't uh, reward innovation, and it really doesn't speak to how physicians are practicing medicine today. Interesting. So. Uh, for patients who have commercial insurance or, or something, would, would that still apply to them, or is that maybe a different set of rules? It's a different. It's a different set of rules. And so Stark and its sister uh, legislation, the anti-kickback statute. Um, so Stark is a civil uh, strict liability. No uh, proof of intent is required. So you can. You can basically implicate Stark even if you don't intend to implicate Stark. So it's uh, it's 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 very very broad. The anti-kickback statute is has criminal and civil penalties. So you know you can you can go to jail if you uh, violate the anti-kickback statute. Got it. So talk about what does this mean? You know, maybe to give us a couple patient care scenarios to to explain how a doctor might bump into these rules. Um, well, you know, again, any time that a physician is referring to an entity that he or she or their um, in immediate family member has a referral, uh, has an ownership basis. So, um, you know, that's probably the, the, the easiest, um, you know, mo most common example. But Physician compensation arrangements are often under um, stark um, issues as well. We're talking about fair market value, you know, things like that. So that's uh, again, um, those are those are examples where stark is implicated on uh, on a daily basis. Okay, so as far as fair market value, you're talking about fair market value of um, like a physician's time and maybe like a consulting arrangement or something. Uh, absolutely. Or, or, I mean, just compensation in terms of, you know, if they're contracted with a, with a health system, you know, how much can be um, paid to that particular um, physician. Got it. So the Stark law, just so I'm clear, the Stark laws would govern either give a, probably not a hard cap, but some sort of reasonability test to the maximum amount that a doctor could make in a certain role yes. in a health system. Yes, because you, you don't want it to be seen to induce referrals to the health system. Right. Interesting. So as far, I'm just wondering how this plays out kind of in the real world. If we had, for example, you know, an orthopedist, or I think pain management would could potentially have a, a similar vibe where if you have a physician who does some procedures, who has a really good reputation, who by virtue of them being wherever they are, 
would bring patients to that site of service. How it, it seems like practically, I can understand what you're saying, but functionally, I'm wondering how you can divorce these two things, right? Like a doctor would be more valuable to an institution if they would bring with them name recognition and credibility. And with that, probably like a bunch of research attention and patient volume. So I'm just wondering, like, how have you seen organizations try to sort of toe this line? Like, oh, we really want Dr. Smith. He's excellent. He's got a great reputation. He is like the linchpin of like orthopedic procedures in this city for this type of thing. And if we get him at our institution, we know that we're going to, it's going to be a great PR thing. We're going to be able to do more research and, you know, have a higher profile and probably have more patients come in the door. Like I can see that being a very natural consequence of getting an, a, an acclaimed physician. How, how, uh, how would this apply in that kind of situation? I'm wondering, or, or is that sort of murky? It can be murky, but what um, hospital systems and employers do uh, in order to calculate compensation is they typically use um, surveys such as MGMA is a big one. And so when I was in the physician recruitment world and we really wanted a certain candidate, a you know, top neurosurgeon, orthopedic surgeon, and we were trying to get to the top of the amount for compensation, we would look at MGMA, we would look at um, a couple of other compensation surveys and get a fair market value recommendation from those um, from those surveys, and then you know, typically, if I wanted to go to the up to the 90th percentile of MGMA, I'd be okay. Anything beyond that would um, sometimes require board approval from the hospital board. So no, it comes up it comes up you know fairly often, especially in those hard to recruit. Um, specialists, you know, not so much in, in, in primary care, but definitely in, um, in areas, um, rural areas, um, specialty shortage areas, it, it comes up pretty often. So surveys are a great way to, to go. But so, you know, I, and I just wanted to kind of get back to, to Stark. Stark started out in 1988. And over the course of, you know, the past 30 years, there, there haven't been a lot of changes um, to Stark, there is a Stark too. I think that was back in um, uh, 1993, and then some more changes in 2007. Actually, I think in 2007 the changes were related to um, um, CRNAs. So that may be of interest to you. I think it was the supervision of CRNAs that um, seemed to be addressed at during that time. Interestingly, though, last October, uh, CMS came out, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services came out with proposed um, new rules um, that were going to reform um, Stark and the anti-kickback statute. And it was really interesting because they they had put out a, a re request for information the previous year and everybody and anybody who's part of healthcare, whether it's the you know um, AMA or um, specialty um, colleges, um, the Association of Anesthesiologists, et cetera, everybody sent comment letters to CMS saying, well, here's how we want Stark um, changed because we are in a new era of telemedicine, of using more um, um, ancillary providers such as CRNAs, physician assistants, um, et cetera, and value-based care. I, you know, it's my understanding that anesthesiologists and pain um, medicine specialists may not do as much value-based care as primary care doctors, for example. So this, but um, they are part of teams that provide 
value-based care. And so CMS came out and proposed these rules saying, okay, we're going to open these uh, these areas up. We're going to bring Stark into this new world of, uh, of uh, telemedicine and um, the ability also for referrals to happen between these in these previously prohibited relationships because again anesthesiologists and and pain um, medicine doctors and orthopedic surgeons they may be part of bundled payment programs and that's a type of value-based care and those would have to pass muster under stark every single time that they went in went into a contract. So CMS basically said last fall, all right, we are going to open open up to value-based care. And the more risk that you take as a practitioner, as a provider, the less oversight that um, Stark will have on your practice. So that's a little simple way of putting it, but it's basically, you know, rewarding those practitioners that are embracing risk. Got it. Okay. And so in light of the complexity added to our healthcare system and the strain by coronavirus, how how have practitioners bumped into Stark? How have they found it to be like restrictive? And, and in what ways is that being examined right now? Well, I'm gonna actually flip that question if you don't mind. So I think what happened was, it was unprecedented in, in our history in terms of um, CMS coming out, the administration coming out and saying, okay, we're going to help you doctors in order to um, keep providing services to keep the lights on. So we're going to um, provide some blanket waivers because historically CMS only issued Stark Law waivers on a case-by-case basis. So these blanket waivers that were issued um, about uh, a couple of weeks ago, they're they're really unprecedented. And um, so, what does that what does that mean? They they they're national in scope. So you know, every every practitioner in the country, if they are you know, um, if they take Medicare, essentially, are are impacted, and they're going to remain in effect um, during the period of the national emergency. And um, there's there's. 18 waivers that were were issued, and there were um, five uh, purposes um, under these waivers. Um, So these waivers only apply to financial relationships and referrals that are related to the national emergency that is the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States. Okay, so the purposes the five purposes, they seem a little narrow at first, like the very first one says it's, it, it has to be related to uh, the diagnosis or medically necessary treatment of COVID-19 for any individual, whether or not the individual is diagnosed with a confirmed case of COVID-19. Well, you and I know, there's a lot of doctors out there that are, that are unfortunately because of the ban on elective procedures, they're not practicing medicine. They're not treating, um, individuals that have um, COVID or, you know, suspected to have COVID. Um, But if we look down to the, you know, down the list of purposes, um, they do say that what can happen is you can avail yourself of these waivers to start if the purpose is to address a medical practice or business interruption 
due to the COVID-19 to maintain the availability of medical care and related services for patients and the community. So basically, if your practice is impacted, your business is interrupted by COVID-19, which, you know, arguably every single physician in the country, um, you know, falls under this, then, you know, this is a very, very broad, uh, very broad um, provision. Got it. I'm, I want to try to put this in practical terms just so I can understand. If we had a previously prohibited referral, self-referral, like my brother owns a, I mean, in this example, maybe he like, he's been trying to start a telemedicine company or like create a platform where we can have secure HIPAA compliant communication between physicians and patients. And, you know, that's a, a thing that exists that he's been working on. And we, we maybe talk because I think, oh, you know, this could have potential, but I can't use it in my practice because of Stark. If there's this blanket waiver that you just described, and I think, well, this previously prohibited type of referral under the Stark laws, as long as I can find grounds for this type of referral under one of those five categories that you mentioned, this is no longer prohibited in the interest of accelerating patient care. Is that accurate? Um, or is this too specific? It, it can be, but okay. um, you, you know, so we we have to remember. So the the waivers are only going to be um, possible um, and applicable until the end of the pandemic, until the public health emergency is lifted. So if if something was um, you know subject to to Stark or anti-kickback under under those particular set of facts, unless they fit these these parameters um, for this limited period of time, then I would argue that a new business probably would not be safe under these terms. But you know, I think it's something that he's got to you know really look at it, it, it you know to a to an attorney that is versed in in telemedicine. And like you know, I can I can see the point, but I but I don't think that it would work that way. They really are talking about existing relationships, whether it's, uh, you know, lease payments, uh, rent, uh, comp some compensation arrangements, you know, things like that. They, the, the goal is to keep physicians in practice. And the goal is to make sure that, um, you know, again, looking at the CARES Act broadly, right, you know, we've already had that first infusion of um, a bolus of cash um, that has come to many physician practices already. I don't, you know, um, and so, you know, that's there. There is also, as of today, I know there's a second round that hopefully that the administration is going to, and Congress is going to um, agree upon to have even more money that's um, sent to practices. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'm very interested to see in a lot of different ways how they uh, continue to sort of move the target as far as total funding for the under the CARES Act. It's a, well, a and can I just can I just like to say one more thing? I think sure. it's really important that that practices that do decide to avail themselves of one of the waivers, and we can get into some specific waivers like um, you know employment and um, office space and equipment rentals, uh, you know things like that, but. What, what I think is really, really important for practices to remember is that they've got to maintain some records. So even though they don't have to, to reach out to CMS and, and say, hey, I want to avail myself of this particular waiver, 
they they still need to maintain records. They need to document um, that, you know, which COVID-19 purpose. And again, it could just be that business interruption. So on a con- um, contemporaneously basis, because it's not something that you want to go back and do afterwards when CMS comes to you and say, hey, you know what, we're finally getting around to looking at uh, at these waivers that you availed yourself of, whether it was reduced rent or increased comp, whatever it is, and we think that there could be fraud and abuse, you know, show us your records. And it doesn't have to be something you know, very detailed or, um, you know, CMS really hasn't even um, provided the guidelines as to what exactly they're looking for other than to record what purpose you are using, um, you know, um, the the waiver under. Um, You know, it's really important maybe to have like a point person to handle all um, these type of uh, um, arrangements and just make sure that you just, you know, you're consistent in your documentation. Like, for example, a health system. And, and my my constituents are not health systems. They're now individual physicians and physician groups. But a health system, for example, um, needs to make sure that if they are providing help to um, a certain physician, that they do so consistently with, with all physicians that are similarly situated. So they don't want to have... Uh, CMS looking at that situation and say, hey, you know, you're paying, you paid more to Dr. A, but is that because you really needed um, help during the pandemic or was it because Dr. A is, you know, your biggest referral source? So we still have to be careful. Right. Can you give maybe a couple more examples of those categories you mentioned and what proper navigation of the waiver may entail? Sure. So, um, I think one of the the waivers that that you know your clients, my clients may be um, looking at is the waiver that permits payments by an entity to a physician um, that is above or below fair market value for services personally performed by the physician. So, for example, hazard pay or restructuring procedure based compensation methodologies, and that's a big one for. Um, for surgeons and anesthesiologists and anybody but primary care i mean you know they're they're they've been unable to um to to do those elective surgeries those elective procedures so this is a this is a big one but again you have to really really be very careful in the methodology that's used by the health system to provide that that pay that compensation to the physicians involved. So a- as an example with that one, you know, the hazard pay situation, what you're saying is, you know, traditionally we would be governed by MGMA data to to sort of extrapolate a reasonable compensation level for physicians of certain specialty in a medical practice. For a period of time, we may consider an opportunity to give them hazard pay, which mm-hmm. may be above and beyond what we would traditionally consider to be reasonable. And yes. as such, we would receive protection under this rule, under this waiver, for as long as this period of national public health crisis exists uh, per CMS, that we can, we're not going to be penalized for that as long as we're keeping proper records. Is that accurate? I think that's accurate. I, I, I think, too, that it's important for when that type of pay is, you know, above fair market value, I think it's still important for there to be a reasonableness standard that will be applied. So it can't just be, you know, through the roof um, type of compensation. So, you know, again, because, you know, CMS will will come back and, and look at you for any type of fraud and abuse. Sure. 
Yeah, I don't know what you're seeing out there, Anu, but I, I'm certainly not. Most of the physicians I'm bumping into right now aren't saying, holy cow, money is falling out of the sky. It, it tends to be a little bit more uh, the opposite of there's massive system disruption, ORs aren't functioning, elective procedures have all been shut down, the anesthesiologists are trying to, uh, you know, turn yeah. into intensivists exclusively, and everything is uh, economically disrupted <laughs> the way it's clinically disrupted. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, um, earlier last week, I know that the American Society of Anesthesiologists sent uh, Secretary Azar of Health and Human Services a letter um, asking for some very specific asks for payment for loss of work via grant grant uh, process. And he references, or I'm sorry, they reference the, the association references um, that payment to be issued for each anesthesia professional, um, you know, is pegged to M MGMA. Um, they're also, you know, and that the intent is to revive physician practices that are facing these economic challenges due to postponement and cancellation of non-essential services. I mean, there's just been a huge, as you know, decline in, in revenue. So, you know, and what, you know, the other thing that they're looking at is some changes in, in an increase in reimbursement for certain CPT codes for ventilation management and intubation, et cetera. So they're asking for a 20% add-on to that. Um, and I think those are all pretty reasonable um, asks. Um, by the uh, Association of Anesthesiologists. And um, so I, I don't know what your thoughts are, or what, you know, what your clients are saying, but uh, this isn't meant to make people whole, but it's, but if it could provide some relief so they can stay in business, they, so that they could keep their staff working. Um, I'm, you know, I hope that the, the secretary and the administration really look upon this because, you know, there's, pent up demand, there's going to be lots of demand for um, surgeries, et cetera, in the coming weeks already in some states that are opening up as, you know, uh, um, Secretary Verma came out with, uh, with that plan to um, start opening up phase one. And I think Ohio, Georgia, Texas are already uh, planning to carefully, cautiously reopen. Yeah. I'm curious in your opinion, and I'm not going to hold you to this, but I want to know just kind of your shoot from the hip what you think. Um, and I have, I would say, like the business corollary to this with, with regards to the CARES Act and $349 billion allocated for small business, which has been <laughs> very challenging to navigate. And obviously, you know, medical practices, many of them are small businesses or surgery centers would fall under that umbrella. But as far as the, the, the CMS Stark waiver and its intended purpose of making... Uh, you know, access to care more readily available and helping physicians economically in some targeted ways. Do you think that, do you think that this is going to work or help or be effective to that end? How and where can this go wrong or, or might it, or has it? We're so early into it, Justin, that I don't know if things have gone wrong yet. What I'm getting from my clients are um, questions about, okay, well, you know, my health system, um, is offering me um, reduced rent at this time. Is that is that okay? You know, what else should I be looking at? This is a new lease, or my health system, or my employer is you know um, withholding my productivity bonus. You know, things like that. Um, so those are the those are the issues that I'm seeing right now. I think that the blanket waivers came down the pike 
in such a, you know, unprecedented way that um, the lawyers, including myself, we're still trying to figure out, well, what's the best way for our clients to avail themselves um, of these waivers? Um, and going forward, uh, you know, what kind of uh, criteria are going to be looked at or are clients going to get in trouble for availing themselves of this? You know, there's almost a little bit of a reticence and fear to even enter into some of the um, agreements, um, and which is, which is sad because um, I think that there are some, you know, business cases definitely for um, compensation um, methodology to be changed and altered during this time, even if it's just for a temporary uh, basis. Because we have to remember the the employment agreement or contract, it's still a contract. You know, it's still valid. Everything else under that contract um, is still, you know, um, you're still going to be um, held to. And one of the things that that that's popping up a lot um, for you know in my world are um, the rental charges that uh, physician or physician practices pay for um, space or equipment. Um, the waiver is allowing it to be under fair market value. I don't really tell you how much under fair market value. So, um, you know, I think that uh, th there's an opportunity there to help with some cash flow for uh, many practices. Um, and I think that you can even maybe use this as a opportunity in a you know long term renegotiation of the lease because the other thing that i think we're all going to face is well fair market value prior to march 30th is going to be really different um going forward i mean we may see fair market value of leases and compensation agreements really drop and, you know, that's that's kind of frightening, but um, it also could provide some great opportunities. Yeah. Can you give a couple more specific examples or ideas maybe of based on the, the focuses, the, the communicated sort of uh, pillars of the, the, the Stark waiver, ways that physicians can proactively maybe recommend to their health system or whoever you know, they pay the rent to or whoever they lease the, the, the equipment from? Are there other opportunities where they could say, hey, like, person on the other side of this exchange of money, we have an opportunity here under the Stark waiver to do something that could be mutually beneficial? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about it, you know, um, the actual employment contract, the personal services contract and compensation. Um, definitely office space and equipment rentals are a way to, um, um, again, to look at. So purchase, uh, purchased items or services from the entity, from the health system is another you know, potential area that could be done at uh, below fair market value. So I'm only talking in in the context, as I know you are, of the of the physician, not of the of the entity, right. because it goes both ways. The entity also could amend the lease the lease payment that they are paying to a physician group requesting below fair market value. So it works both ways. Um, but we're just talking about physicians. Um, loans right now. I mean, um, you know, the blanket waiver, it permits loans to a physician or physician group um, at an interest rate that is below fair market value. And that, so the caveat is on terms that are unavailable from a disinterested lender. So, for example, um, hospital can loan money to an anesthesia group from which it has an exclusive contract to cover the physician's lost income due to the cancellation of elective surgeries. 
um, to ensure that the hospital has anesthesia services needed for COVID-19 patients. So this sounds like a great opportunity for hospital-based mm -hmm. private anesthesia groups. Yep. So if, if the hospital has a little bit more, which frankly, they, I mean, even many hospitals right now are struggling for the same reason the anesthesia groups are, but they may have a little bit of a more robust balance sheet to be able to say, hey, for a period of time, we're going to loan you some money to float you to to allow you to continue to provide services yep. and and we're, we're going to pr be protected under Stark. Especially if those, or sorry, under the Stark waiver, but especially if those groups maybe applied for the Paycheck Protection Program uh, under the Small Business, uh, right. the Small Business Administration, and either got caught up in you know administrative purgatory or whatever, and, and for whatever reason didn't get any money on that side of things. Yeah, and that and that kind of brings me to another um, issue. You know, one, you have to be really careful. The physician group has to be very careful to document the different streams of money that are that are coming in. So we had that first bolus of money. Um, a, a couple, uh, you know, a week ago last Friday, um, from CMS that was uh, related to what your Medicare billings were from 2019. So you have that, right? And then you're you may be also getting something under the um, blanket waivers, Stark waivers from um, the the hospital entity that you're affiliated with. So there's another stream there, and there may be another stream of money that's coming in from uh, small business and uh, um, paycheck protection, and then to. Today, uh, you know, we we may be missing it right now, Justin. But but the Trump administration may be announcing another bolus of money. So yeah. you have to be really careful what you're using um, the money for as well. So record keeping, I think, is is extremely important. Again, not not super complicated, but just to make sure that that you know, well, this money that the that w came to me from this source was used for this COVID-19 purpose. So what happens though, for example, if you do get a loan from a hospital and what happens when the waivers end? I mean, does it, does it accelerate the repayment of the, you know, entire loan? Um, you know, what are the lo loan documents? What do they say? Do they, are they meant to demand immediate repayment when the emergency ends? What if the interest rate adjusts to fair market value at that point? You know, um, yeah, there's, there's, some there's lots of opportunities there yeah seems like another area in which this is like a, a ready fire aim situation just playing out in front of us the way that uh it's very difficult to give away 2.2 billion dollars in a very short amount of time in any sort of orderly fashion and then when you layer onto yeah. that the complexities of public health and healthcare administration and all the different permutations of that it's it's a serious logistical challenge and uh, there's definitely part of the story yet to be written and, you know, another thing that your clients and I know that some of my uh, hospitalists and uh, critical care clients have, have uh, been able to avail themselves, the, the under Stark, there's a cap as to how much a physician can be paid annually in non-monetary compensation. And it's about $423, $25 right now, which isn't a lot, but that limit has been waived. So the hospital entity, the DHS entity can can fund um, things above that annual limit for PPE, for supplies, um, for CME that's related to COVID-19 training. Um, they can also provide um, the physicians with housing, with meals, childcare, transportation, 
um, or provision of support personnel to physician offices. Um, so there's a there's you know that's pretty significant um, as well. Um, I I know that that my brother um, has been isolating. He's a critical. My other brother, not anesthesiologist, uh, was uh, isolating. Um, from his family, which a lot of physicians are doing, and um, you know he's fortunate he has a he has an, a little guest house on his property, but um, many physicians are checking into hotels, their Airbnbs, and so this is something that that a hospital system, an employer, um, can reimburse the the physician for, and I think that that's very significant. Got it. Yeah, that's a great point. I know of uh, a new client the other day who I was talking to it was one of our first calls and they were uh, down the street. We were doing a Zoom call and it was husband and wife and husband was at the hotel and um, wife was at home and we're all here in the same city. But because of you know that self-isolation there, they've decided to uh, do that. So it's, it's a good note that that's something that an employer can reimburse for uh, yep. without running afoul of Stark because of the waiver. Yep. And the other thing that in terms of employed physicians um, or contracted physicians, a hospital um, could potentially agree to pay an employed contracted physician based on their 2019 production. And that's because, you know, because of the cancellation of elected procedures, if their comp was tied to, if they had a base and then a, then a, a you know, productivity um, component, um, Again, not to make the physician whole is my understanding, but uh, you know, to keep the lights on, to keep moving forward, and then having a true up, uh, you know, later on in in, in the year. Um, because let's face it, even with the pent up demand, right? I mean, are physicians, the proceduralists, going to be able to just jump back in and and you know work twenty four seven to make up for the the lost productivity and associated revenues? So yeah. So this makes me want, you know, this is, it's like, it all sounds great. Like there's money everywhere that we can request under the Stark waivers. But I think this bring what I'm wondering, as I'm hearing you describe these situations is uh, what about sort of the entity system, hospital viability, financial strength? Mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing to say that doctors can get that without running afoul of Stark. It's another to say like, well, maybe the hospital doesn't want to or can't or would love to pay you on 2019 production. But because there is no 2020 production, they don't have the money to pay. And so even though it's not illegal, the resources don't exist. Is that something that you're seeing? Not yet, because they're, you know, the first round of uh, CARES Act funding, hospitals got quite a bit of, of money and they're advocating, um, they're lobbying for, for more under the second round, you know, and, and I think that it's important to remember that, again, the, the, the lifeblood the, of the hospital system are our clients, the physicians that admit and perform surgeries and um, provide the anesthesia services. So I think it's, it's, you know, in hospitals best interest to do whatever they can do to keep physicians, um, you know, in, in business. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more we could say there, but, uh, <laughs> Well, uh, well, 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 I will tell you one of the things I know you and I talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, it, you know, it's private equity. So private equity backed um, physician practices were excluded from benefiting from um, the CARES Act uh, money. 
but what I what I'm seeing, and I've got a couple of um, transactions that are going on right now. Private equity activity is not going to cease going forward. They have cash reserves, and you know I think that what we may see actually is more. Um, uh, private equity uh, investment in um, primary care um, practices. And that could be very good for um, our proceduralist uh, clients as well, because if private, uh, if, if primary care practices close, well, you know, referral streams also um, dry up. And so it's going to be a very interesting, it's like the wild west, honestly. I mean, and, and, you know, and just going back to Stark for just a minute, I'm, I'm really excited because CMS is supposed to come out with final rules for the, their proposed rules that they did back in October. And we all were like, wow, these are so great. These new, uh, you know, enhancements and liberalization of, of Stark. Now they turn that all on, on, you know, on its head and, and the waivers that we have now. Well, why couldn't some of these waivers be law going forward? I mean, why do we have to be constrained by things that were that happened 30 years ago? You know, it's a it's a different world. Absolutely right. And I think we're going to ask those questions in a lot of different areas with JCO and HIPAA and with uh, oversight of CRNAs in some cases where uh, there's just a lot of different places that right now the landscape is changing and the questions are going to be asked. Does it make sense to flip it back when the time comes or is this part of the new normal? Time will tell. Absolutely. Absolutely. And new, is there anything in closing that you want that you haven't been able to cover that you want to elaborate on a little bit? I think it's really, um, you know, it, it behooves everybody who is taking part in any type of CARES Act funding, any type of um, Stark waivers to just take a few minutes before entering into arrangements and write down, look at those purposes, the, the five purposes and, you know, the, that very broad one about business interruption. Take a look at those purposes, look at the reading and have your counsel or um, other business advisor to, um, you know, make a note of that. Make sure you have a point person who is, um, you know, tracing back the way that the funds are used back to the purpose, back to the source, so that if CMS um, um, comes knocking, you know, I don't want any of our physicians um, to run afoul and, you know, be carted off to jail or, or pay fines or anything. You know, it's the last thing we want. I mean, these these are, are being put out there to keep our doctors in practice. And that is the most important thing right now is to, um, you know, we have a shortage in this country and we'll, and that shortage is going to get worse. I, the last thing I want are um, physicians to go out of business. That will be a, a very sad day. Absolutely. So we're going to post some resources on the show notes page. So anesthesiasuccess.com slash 45B as this will be episode 45B. We're gonna have a news contact info there if you wanna reach out to her, and also some of the resources that she recommends that practice-owning physicians, especially, but, but even some employed physicians, familiarize themselves with in order to make sure they understand what do the Stark waivers mean, uh, how should we consider trying to capitalize on any opportunities that they present right now. So anesthesiasuccess.com slash 45B, you can check that out. Anu Murthy, thank you very much for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you very much. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.